Today is Saturday, April 22nd here in 2023, and this is Celtics Beat here on CLNS Media, the leading online provider of audio-video coverage of your Boston Celtics. Evan Valenti solo here. Today's show, 509, featuring the ringers. Brian Barrett is brought to you in part by FanDuel and by BetterHelp. Go to FanDuel.com backslash Boston for $200 in free bets after you make your first bet of $5 or more. And go to BetterHelp.com slash Beat for 10% off your first month. Welcome in, everybody. Evan Valenti solo here on Celtics Beat. Adam on vacation, enjoying the tropics. Adam, I hope you're having a great time. Uh, I guess my only thing that I would say is last year when I went on a vacation, Rob Williams got hurt. It is only fair that, of course, Marcus Smart got a little dinged up last night. It's maybe karma. Maybe Adam and I should just never go on vacation when the Seas are playing basketball games. That way we don't jinx anything. But uh, I hope Adam and his family are having a great time. He'll be back next week. Right now, though, in his place, we have one of my favorite dudes, uh, back to the Syracuse days, WAR, now joining us here as a member of the Ringer Podcast Network. He hosts Off the Pike, Brian Barrett. What's going on, brother? How you doing? Valenti, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm do- I would be doing a little bit better if we were talking about the Celtics being up three games to none. But I'll say this. I predicted that they would win the series in five. Although <laughs> after game one and after game two, I started thinking, okay, this is probably going to be a sweep. But the Celtics played basically as poorly as you can play defensively. And they still had an opportunity late to win that game. So I'm not in panic mode whatsoever. It just It was an aggravating loss i'll say that last night yeah we'll get into that and your life last night was a little difficult right because you had b's and c's on like simultaneously it's it it, we were just chatting like pre-show about how it's great that sunday for game four for both teams they've at least staggered the games for a guy like yourself who's you know trying to do you know cover two playoff teams at the same time how did you make last night work a dual screen like because again, both of these games are flow games. You kind of, if you miss a minute, like last night, the Hawks went on an eight, eight nothing run in the second half in a minute and like five seconds. You know, you, you can kind of get lost. How tough was that for you? Yeah, it wasn't the easiest, but you know, I'm not laying brick here, right? It's not like <laughs> I have the most difficult job in the world, right? <laughs> I'm watching sports. So, I mean, it, it, it was difficult in the sense, like, you don't want to miss anything, right? right. Like, especially with the NHL where it moves so fast. And I mean, you made a great point before when, before we got on here, just talking about like, all right, if it's the Red Sox, that's one thing, right? Because the game now it moves faster now with the new rules, but it moves slower. But man, I got to tell you, like I was completely dialed in last night. And the thing that really sucked too is, you know how ESPN always says, oh, it's a seven o'clock game. And it really didn't start until like seven eighteen. So that could have been a half an hour that we got out of the way before the Bruins started. So actually like halftime and the first intermission overlapped, which is like the worst possible situation, right? Because it's like, all right, when the Celtics go to halftime, I wish the Bruins were just playing the entire time. And unfortunately that didn't happen, but it was a really good win for the Bruins. And I mean, I got to say about, I know this is a Celtics ball, but before the game, I'm thinking to myself, wait, we don't even know if Hallmark's playing. Bergeron, we know is not playing. Then David Krejci's like a healthy scratch right before the game. I'm like, what's going to happen? And the Bruins came out and they were unbelievable. Charlie Coyle was awesome in that game. Pasta scored. And I thought Orlov played really well. So it's a good thing. Like if you looked like before last night, you were thinking to yourself, okay, it feels like the Celtics are going to take this commanding lead. And wait, are the historic Bruins really in trouble? And then after it, it's like, okay, the Bruins are going to win this series. Like now 
Florida has got all sorts of issues in terms of their goaltending. And I don't want to say, and like I said, I'm not panicking about the Celtics, but the Hawks found some things that worked for them in that game last night. Yeah, let's, let's, again, the Bruins, uh, it would just be tough. And you and I, and, and I think a lot of Bruins fans around the country are thinking like, President's trophy, kiss of death here. Come on. Like, can't, this can't happen. Like, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta break, we want the lightning here. We gotta break this streak. Uh, but, you know, again, being down, you know, Bergeron until game five, basically at this point is just makes me nervous. Cause I mean, the guy's such a stud and, and this particular run, you know, just, just, you want to get one more for the guy. Cause it, at, at any point, you know, he could be done and, and he's been such a great brew in his whole career. It's just, you want to get one more for him, but, uh, good to get them, get, get that, that W last night, especially with, they just offensively just put it on, <laughs> just put it on for last night, which was great. But let's get to the Celtics because that's what we're here for. C's drop game three, still up two games, two one, still up in the series. Nobody panicked, but the game last night, 131 22, your final. And I do want to start with the defense, Brian, because the Celtics last night picked a quite the game to have one of their worst defensive performances of the year. Uh, I, I think Greeny had the number that it would be the worst defensive game they would have had if they had this game was played last year in terms of points per possession, 127.2 uh, points per 100 possessions. That is their fourth, fourth worst mark of the year. Atlanta set their franchise uh, record history in terms of 74 points and a half. That's one off, I think, the most points and a half in playoff history. I think 75. Um, basically, Atlanta got whatever they wanted last night uh, in the first half. Joe Mazzula talked earlier this afternoon, as we're recording this on Saturday, about how that first half really set the tone uh, for Atlanta. Boston did a good job, you know, in the second half trying to make it work. But, Brian, it felt a little – you know, too little, too late. And what I thought last night, Barrett, was a great example of what happens when you let a home team come home and get comfortable. I think Boston last night let Atlanta, especially like Sadiq Bay um, and Trey Young specifically, as my audio goes crazy here because I just pulled up the box score for a second. Um, as, you know, Trey Young got more comfortable. DeJounte Murray's had a great series, but Sadiq Bay got a little more comfortable you know, Boston just let them get comfortable in the first half. And as good as they were offensively, and we'll save that for a second, uh, defensively, like, just weren't getting into guys. The drop, pick, and roll covers are working t- so hot. Uh, and they let guys just, you know, get hot. And when Trey gets hot, he's tough to, to stop. And when he gets in the middle of the paint, you know, that floater game that he has, as much as I don't like watching Trey Young play basketball, he's very efficient there. And and Boston just didn't do enough later on to, to stop the, the, the heat that the – that Atlanta was thrown from three point range, in my opinion, they would they shoot like almost fifty percent in the first half in terms of their three point percentage. It just wasn't it wasn't a physical enough game for me, Bears. I'm trying to get to. Yeah, well, in the first half, uh, you point out the uh, the defensive rating. I should say it was one forty five in the first half, and they had an effective field goal percentage well over seventy percent in the seventy sixth percentile range. So it was just really bad from a defensive perspective and I can't really prove this but like there's no way anybody could prove this but I really do think that the way the Celtics shot the ball it actually hurt their defense right because it felt like oh you know what we're shooting at a historic pace right now we're going to hit a million threes in this game it's going to be easy and so I did feel like they didn't really have and they and it kind of surprised me because it felt like they treated this game almost like a regular season game Like, it reminded me of that OKC game when OKC scored, like, 150 points where there were so many just, like, straight-line drives to the basket. Now, I will give Atlanta credit for some things that they did in this game, and Quinn Snyder in particular. What he did, essentially, 
is they started setting the screen higher for Trey Young and DeJounte Murray so they could just get downhill. And we saw through the first couple of games, they really flummoxed Trey. Like Trey was really bad through the first two games, and I thought they did a much better job getting him downhill. And the thing that sticks out to me, the two issues they had, the drive game of Atlanta and the offensive rebounding for Atlanta, which was a major issue in this game. And this is a problem that the Celtics, like they were the best rebounding team in the NBA this past season. But we've seen in some of these playoff series through recent years, they have their issues. Like I go back to Milwaukee game five last year, where they gave up seven in the fourth quarter and they were up by a point with 14 seconds left. Giannis misses a free throw. All they have to do is get one rebound. The game's over, and they go to Milwaukee up three games to two rather than trailing, but Bobby Portis gets it, puts it back in, et cetera. And if you look at the numbers last night in terms of the offensive rebounding situation, the Hawks, their offensive rebounding percentage was 37.2%. Okay, Houston led the league at 34.4%. So they were like three percentage points better than the team that was best at it. And the Celtics were the best in the league at 25.4% in terms of their opponent offensive rebounding percentage. So that to me is just like an effort thing. Like you got to be better on the boards because here's the thing. And they acknowledged it after the game. Marcus Smart said, he said, we know they're coming every time. So that's just something where you got to put bodies on guys, right? And take care of this. But with all this being said, they still had a chance to win despite the fact that the defense was just so bad in this game. And I will say this just in terms of the strategy, I know early it was the drop coverage, Trey's just getting by guys, but late man, and I know last year he held up really well as an isolation defender, but I don't know if the answer is switching out Horford on Trey either, because Trey just cooked him late in this game. I mean, he did. He had nine points in like the time that he was on it for, but in 42 seconds, he had nine points and two assists. And same thing when Hauser's on the court. He's just going at Hauser. So, I mean, that'd be my one big adjustment. I'd take Hauser out of the rotation and just put Grant in there because Grant was really good. Yeah, Grant Grant had a great game last night, especially from the floor, shooting the basketball. Good to see him stay ready. Like, I know it's hard to do that, but it's good to him to stay ready, you know, come off the bench firing and, and, and really make it an impact on, on both ends of the floor. I thought he was good defensively too. Uh, I do want to go back to a point that you made earlier because I, I think this is actually a really good point. It did remind me, like the fact that Boston was hitting so many shots offensively reminded me of the earlier 21 and five run they had or 23 and five or whatever it was, where it was like, who, like it almost like who cares about defense when offensively, like Boston was setting historical records, like per 100 possessions without good their offense was. I mean, they were just, again, that first stretch from the, the first game of the season till like, you know, mid to end of December was, like comical how good they were offensively. It was like Missoula balls here to revolutionize everything. It's like, <laughs> holy cow. Like they, again, it didn't feel like they cared a lot about their defense because they just would focus most of their energy on the offensive end. And I, it, I kind of got it. It's much more fun to just to play great offense and have everybody touch the ball and everything. I, I, what made me happy was late was how they kind of switched things around, changed up their coverages. They picked up guys a little bit, you know, quicker in their sets instead of, you know, waiting for them to get to the three-point line. They made an adjustment of picking them up a little bit before the three-point line and some of that pick-and-roll stuff. You know, yeah, Al being one-on-one on Trey Young isn't great, but at the same time, I'm not saying that this is going to excuse everything. You do have to point out that at at the end of the game, Barrett, like DeJounte Murray's three from the corner uh, where, you know, with the shot clock winding down, like that's just a ridiculous shot. Like Trey had another yeah. one, I think, maybe on Horford, earlier in that sequence in the fourth quarter where you're like, all right, like, okay, if they're going to make these shots, like you're just going to have to live with that. You know, like, you know, if you had made adjustment here and there earlier in the game, maybe you wouldn't be at this point, but at the end of the game, 
you know, Atlanta's just hit a bunch of tough shots and you just tip your cap to Trey and DeJounte and you move on. I, I think what made me most encouraged was that first half was a nightmare. But like the second half, Boston, you know, they they got themselves back in the game with about two minutes to go. Like I'm sitting there watching the game, my buddy, and we're like, you know, think of this to like seven, five, six with about a buck 30 left before the half. I'm like, yeah, they're going to be just fine. Like, you know, they took Atlanta's best shot here and only going to be down like, you know, five or six points. They did that again in the third quarter. There'd be a run where Boston would cut it to about four or whatever, and then Atlanta would go nuts. And they did the same thing in the fourth quarter. You know, Boston showed the ability to tighten it up when they wanted to and turn the water off for Atlanta a little bit. But again, Atlanta hit a couple of tough ones to kind of break up that run, and then you go on the run themselves, and you know things would snowball. But you know, the adjustments, I think, are there. I think one of the things that we are, we're all kind of still worried about is as people that watch this team and people that cover this team is. You know, what is Joe Missoula going to look like in the playoffs? And I think so far he's held up, you know, pretty well. Again, they're playing a, a like a garbage Atlanta team. And, and like, I'm not trying to, like, Atlanta's bad. Like, they're just defensively such a nightmare. They're, again, they're really the only thing they have going for them is their athleticism down low and like the ability for them to hang on the offensive glass. That's how they beat Miami. And that's, again, how you pointed out. Like, that's how they won last night. They won last night. They had a bunch of shots in the first half and their offensive rebounding throughout the entire game was a huge issue. And again, I know if that's like an adjustment, if if Grant's going to play more, if Rob's going to play more, if Al's going to play more, or that's just, as you said, guys just finding bodies and boxing guys out. I don't mean, I don't know if that's what the answer is. Yeah, I, I would definitely play Grant more. I still have no, and look, I understand that he was dealing with that elbow issue towards the end of the season there. And if you look from basically February on, he was a below average three-point shooter, south of 36%, which is league average when prior to that, he's well over 40%. And he looked good shooting last night. He had a couple step backs as well. And the reality is he's just a better basketball player than Sam Hauser. And I like Hauser as a player. Like, he clearly has value. But in this series, he has three points. He's played 20 minutes and he has three points. Grant Williams comes into the game last night, obviously gives you a jolt offensively. And I thought Smart had a pretty good defensive game. And I thought Grant did some of those Grant things that are like kind of like what Marcus Smart does, where he gets under the opponent's skin. Like, he took a charge on a Kongwu, but then later on in the game, a Kongwu was just like going to set a screen and he just kind of flopped. Now in Grant's defense it was definitely a foul on a Kongwu, but I do think Grant brings a different dimension and a different energy. And I also think it's important to get him going because we know if ultimately you want to get to where you want to go to Grant has to be part of the equation. Like when you play Milwaukee, Grant and Al are like two of the best defenders in the entire league. So I do think it's imperative that they get Grant back in the rotation. That's why I was kind of surprised Lenti. I don't know if you were that, in the third quarter, Hauser came into the game before Grant. And I understand, like, you come into a game sort of with the plan that you have going in, right? So Hauser obviously was in front of Grant in the rotation. Grant gets in in the first quarter, partially due to the foul trouble. But at the at that point, when you're Missoula in the third quarter, and you just witnessed what Grant did in the first half, why wouldn't you go to him? Like, why would you go to Hauser? I don't understand why there was, like, some loyalty that Hauser deserves the minutes there. From my perspective, there's a higher upside with Grant. You know Grant can bring more to the table than Hauser. So I thought that was a miscalculation on Missoula's part not to get Grant back into the game earlier in that third quarter because he had been good. Yeah, and it's, and at this point, it's going to be about rebounding the rest of the way here. Because, again, I think we we discovered, I think we all knew this, but Atlanta's going to you know pound the glass as much as they can to get as many opportunities at the rim as they can. You know, Boston is killing them on the offensive end, all three games in the series. It's not like it hasn't been easy. Like Boston in the first two games had 118 points in the paint, which is 
absolutely comical. I mean, it's a layup line from, I think, what was the stat from game one? It was what, 82 of 88 of, of the Celtics shots in game one were either a three point range or a layup, or like, are in the paint, yeah. which is just an absolute disaster. <laughs> so, you know, Atlanta, because they have to get as many opportunities as humanly possible. They're going to send bodies to the, the offensive glass and try and get better looks at the, at the rim. That's just the way they're going to have to hang in these series. And with Grant, Again, I love Hauser. I think Hauser has had a terrific season. He had a little bit of a, you know, letdown in the middle of the season, but rebounded quite nicely and I think has has really carved out a role for himself in future teams. But for this series, knowing what we know right now, especially if Grant's going to shoot it well, he just provides again like you said way more upside, a guy that can guard bigger guys. And again, Hauser has held up great. I'm not slandering Sam Hauser. He's held up great at the defensive end. People routinely go after him. And it, it it actually ends up going poorly more often than you think it does, right? It just ends up, you know, Hauser holds up well. But Grant's ability to box out, guard up and down a little bit, and still space the floor, I think is going to be more valuable as the series goes along. And it's good to keep Grant involved because we all know as his team gets further, you're going to need more from Grant, more from Grant, more from Grant. So to keep him, you know, kind of tethered to the bench, I don't love it because you're going to need his energy the, the further the Celtics go in the playoffs. But I, I just think from, you know, an offensive standpoint, he doesn't hurt you if he's hitting shots, but he provides that defensive upside. I want to get to Trey because Trey for the first time in this series really killed Boston. Boston such a, did such a great job of just making his life hell, you know, whenever he's got the basketball. And then on the other side, they just target him constantly and put him in – pick and rolls and basically find ways to get him on Jalen or Jason or anybody because he's the worst defensive guard in the league. But Trey finally offensively had his first good game of the series. And it was for the first time, you know, I think all series where at least I'm sitting at home being like, man, does, does Snyder know that every non-Trey lineup is good and that Trey is the reason why <laughs> the team is getting absolutely roasted? But Trey last night, 32 points plus one in the plus minus. <laughs> it's not like he was – a huge difference in terms of plus minus, but he did actually record his first positive impact game in terms of plus minus. Um, any concern about trade getting warmed up here, or is this just a matter of Snyder made an adjustment? They ran pick and rolls a little higher. Trey got downhill a little bit better. He had a little bit more of the open floor. Or, or are you worried a little bit about Trey getting hot and trying to carry this team a little bit? A little worried, just not that they're going to win the series or that there's going to be a challenge in the series, but just the fact that I now think that he's a problem when it felt like in the first two games, he was just a complete liability and they were terrible with him on the court. Like every run that they made throughout this, the first two games was with Trey on the bench. And even if you go back to last night when the Celtics actually made their run to get back in the game, it's when they put Trey back in, right? Like that's when they started to get back into this thing. But I do give him credit for the way that he played in the fourth quarter and I think that they did make a more conscious effort. Uh, first of all, I said like they were setting screens higher for him. So he was getting downhill sort of with an advantage. He could get to his little floater game and get to the short mid-range, that type of stuff. But the other thing they did is when he, he got rid of the ball more quickly than he was earlier in the series. Like it just felt like the offense just morphs into like sort of what James Harden was in Houston, where he's just completely controlling everything. And it just really wasn't working for them. The thing that stuck out to me about Trey and with Murray, both those guys, is they did a great job getting downhill. So if you look at the drives for them last night in that game, they were 20 of 31, the team, the Atlanta Hawks. So they shot 64.5% on drives. Dallas led the league at 54.7%. It's almost 10 percentage points better than the best team in the league. And 
the Hawks were a team that was 24th in percentage in terms of drives this year. The other thing is they had 45 points off their drives, and that's about 10 points better than the best team in the league this year. Games one and two, they had 42 total points. They had 45 in this one. And so I think what Atlanta realized is, to one of the points you were making earlier, they have to win on the margins, right? We referenced the offensive rebounding, but I really think their game plan in games one and two was poor, right? They wanted to run the Celtics off the three-point line, but they're a bad three-point shooting team, and they wanted to take a ton of threes. It's like, okay, the math game doesn't work if you're incapable of actually hitting threes, and that's what they were trying to do. So in this game, they sort of flipped the script. Now, they got good threes, like kickouts to Sadiq Bey in the corner, stuff along those lines, but they also got Trey Young and DeJounte Murray downhill. So that's the counter that I think Missoula's going to come up with is, hey, how are they defending that in terms of the high pick and roll. Are they going to put Rob on somebody else? Because we saw Quinn Snyder do that on the other side of things where the Celtics, you said the layup line that they were having, basically their answer to that was, hey, we're actually going to put Capella on Smart and we're going to let Smart shoot. So instead of Capella being glued to Al and the lane opening wide up because they respect Al shooting, we're going to have him roam it around. Now, give Smart credit, he had five threes, right? He was five of 12 from three-point territory. But now what's the counter to Missoula, uh, for Missoula against Snyder? What are you doing with those high pick and rolls? Because that's where Atlanta was doing its damage last night. Yeah, maybe, maybe the move is go a little bit smaller. Again, you're going to have to make some sacrifices somewhere, but go a little bit smaller and we'll see with smart south because that's going to be something to monitor going forward here. Again, this was a little bit of a hot topic already today is like the Rob versus Al thing. You know, Al gives you the spacing of five on an offense, but. You know, on an island against Trey Young and Ajante Murray, it's going to be harder. It's easier for Rob to stay with those guys. And it's not like, you know, being four around one, you know, with a – and I thought this was interesting last night, Barry. I don't know if you saw this. The About four minutes to go in the game, and I've been – we've all sort of, like, mentioned this. I know you've mentioned it. I know Simmons has mentioned it a bunch of times in terms of, like, does Missoula know or will Missoula ever – take smart off the floor for Brogdon to see if that works better. And he did it last night with, I think less than four minutes to go, which I thought was very interesting because he was like, I need a little bit more like drive to the basket. Cause Brogdon's straight line drives are just a thing of beauty. The guy, I don't, he just understands angles. I think better than like anybody in the league it just understands. Like I got to take this angle to get to this spot on the floor. He just does it beautifully almost every time on the floor. And Derek White's been so great this series, you can't really sit him. So they brought Brogdon out for a little bit, and then he went right back to Smart really quickly. I wonder if the game plan might be to be a little bit more mobile defensively. Because, again, I don't. I think if you have a mixture of, like, Brogdon, White, Smart, Jalen, and Jason with Rob out there, yeah, you sacrifice a little bit of shooting because Al's ability to pull like Capella out of the paint or whatever big they want to play at the end of the game out of the paint is great. But at the same time, like defensively, you're going to have to make some sort of stand. So this is going to be, again, as we talk about Missoula and him kind of shaking the snow globe a little bit, you know, where does he try and, and, and match Atlanta? You know, does he match him, you know, with the ability to space them out? Or does he match them with the ability to defend up a little bit? And and part of this is like only because Atlanta had one of the best shooting nights they've had this entire series and a best shooting that they've had in a long time. Now Atlanta can do this, but like traditionally they're not a really tremendous three point shooting team. They just don't like outside of Bogdanovich, Murray, and like if Trey's open, I really don't like I don't sweat Sadiq Bay shooting threes. I know we had a good like rookie year in Detroit, but since then he hasn't really shot the ball as well. 
And like everybody else, I just don't really care if they take threes. So I don't know, I, I don't know where you fall on that, but maybe like adding more Rob or like adding Brogdon to go up a little bit, like maybe that's the the counter that Missoula is going to play with. I don't know. I that's my thought at least. Yeah, to the Brogdon thing, and I've been talking about this all season long about like, hey, and my bigger thing was like he wasn't closing with Derek White, right? Like the Utah game to me is sort of like where it changed, where Derek White should have been on the floor at the end of the Utah game. They end up losing, and I felt like obviously Missoula learned his lesson there because we saw what happened throughout the first two games of this playoff run where he was closing with White, and White was in the closing lineup again on Friday night, but I was actually kind of surprised. Like, I give him credit for being pliable and being versatile with his lineups. But that was, like, the one game where I would have said, why would you take Marcus Smart out? Like, there was plenty of examples this year where Smart was bad in crunch time and you should have gone with Brogdon. Last night wasn't the game. Like, I thought Smart had a really good game. It wasn't just the fact that he hit five of his 12 threes. But also I think the fact it was that more it, like he – defensively, I wasn't quite sure if he was the same after that fall because he kept yeah. kind of, like – gingerly yeah. walking down the floor. I thought it was more about that. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. But I do think that Smart did a good job, like, getting into the lane, too, and finding guys, and he had that little floater game going. So out of all the times that Missoula could have made the change and taken Smart out, last night was the one to me. And Brogdon had a good game. It's nothing against Brogdon. I love Brogdon as a player. Last night was, like, the most perplexing time to actually sort of make that move. But in terms of, like, defending uh, the, them in terms of that high pick and roll, what we saw a lot in the first couple of games is they would pre-switch it, right? So, like, when Al's guy would go up to set the screen, you'd see who was ever in the corner, whether it be Brogdon, whether it be ordinarily it's not White because he's on Trey Young, but if it's Jalen, one of those guys would just sprint with the guy that's going to set the screen. So that's probably the best answer is to make sure that it's not one of these other guys on, that it's not one of the bigs, Al or Rob. And the other thing is – I. I don't, like, respect – look, he can get to his step-back game and hit shots, but Trey Young is a pull-up three-point shooter this year. The numbers are the numbers. He's about 32% as a pull-up three-point shooter this year. He has not been a good three-point shooter. So if they're going to set that screen so high, I would just encourage you to go under it, right? Because it's so high that if he pulls it, that's going to be like a logo three based on the location of where they're actually setting the screen – so if you're Derek White, he does such a great job like navigating those screens and getting around. And that's fine when it's right near the three-point line because then he can just rear contest on those little floaters that he takes. But if it's so high, you don't want to give Trey Young a running start or especially DeJounte Murray. You don't want to give him a running start because he's so fast. And he's not a great shooter either. He's a good two-point pull-up shooter, shot about 49%. So great two-point uh, pull-up guy, but not a great three-point pull-up guy. I would just get under those. Like, I, I don't think you need to go over those so high up because these guys are, it's not like you're covering Steph Curry, right? <laughs> Where you're like, okay, that you don't want him to take that shot, but I would be totally okay with them going. Now, it's, if it's close to the three-point line, like I said, defend it at, as you've been defending it, get over it. But I think that you can go under those ones that are that high. Evan Valenti, Brian Barrett from the Ringers off the pike. I know we talked a lot about defense. I know it's been you know, pretty much easy pick-ins for Boston so far on the defense side of the ball because Trey Young hasn't really gotten going. But the reason why I was thrilled, Brian, you were thrilled, I think most Celtics around the world were thrilled when Atlanta won that game versus Miami because we all know Atlanta is one of the worst defensive teams in the league. It's a reason why they could never get more than a couple games over 500 this entire season. And as we step back and analyze last night, once again, Boston just basically get they get whatever they want on, on the offensive end. I don't think, Brian, I've seen an easier time for Boston that I can remember the past couple of years in a series 
get any shot they want. I mean, they're leaving guys wide open from three point range. And I'm not talking like the, you know, the Sam houses of the world or Terry. It's like Jalen, Jason, uh, Al, Malcolm, the four best three pointers on this team, or like at least the ones you're most afraid of. Right. I'm, I don't care what Tatum's numbers are. I'm going to be terrified every time that guy takes a three point shot. All these are wide open. And again, once again, last night, like the Celtics just got whatever they wanted to against a team that, you know, just hung with them. And I think Boston, if you're trying to paint some positives last night, Bear, it's once again, their offense is just humming right now against this Hawks team. Yeah, and the thing is, Atlanta doesn't have an answer, right? I was alluding to the fact earlier that basically their strategy in the first two games was to stay glued to Al, and that meant that the Celtics were just getting all these attempts at the basket. So if you look at it in terms of the first two games, attempts in the restricted area, game 127, game 231. So what you said earlier, layup line, that's what it was. Well, in the game Friday, that went down to 24 because they switched up their coverage with the Marcus Smart situation where they put Capella there. But what happened was the Celtics just started raining threes. Like, this is why Quinn Snyder wanted to take away the three-point game from the Celtics to begin the series is because they have been one of the most lethal three-point shooting teams in the league, second in makes per game behind only the Golden State Warriors. So they felt that was the better strategy. So they pivoted to that to begin the series. And then now they're back to this where they're going to put uh, basically their big men on Marcus Smart and see how the Celtics react to that. Well, how they reacted to that is they stayed in the game when they had a historically bad defensive performance because they were so good from an offensive perspective in this game. And I look at it and I thought Brogdon was really good offensively getting them going. I thought Tatum had a good game despite the fact he missed the three with 58 seconds left that could have tied the game. I thought Smart played really well. The one thing that I would look at in this game that think about it from this perspective. If Jalen just has an average game for Jalen, the Celtics win going away. But Jalen was not good in this game, really, from start to finish. He had a couple of nice back cuts, like the one in transition that Smart found him. Had a couple of nice finishes, but he also missed that three in the corner that could have tied the ball game up. He only has 15 points on 15 shots. It wasn't like he was getting to the free throw line or anything along those lines. He picked up a boneheaded fourth foul. Like, I I don't know what he was doing there. Like, Trey Young's not even close to the basket. He's not close to getting into a shooting position either. There's just no reason for that whatsoever. And I do, and I know we're talking about, like, the positive stuff with the offense, but I do wonder, like, and I kind of, after game two, when he kept, like, shaking his hand, I was wondering, like, hey, do you just give, give him game three off and see yep. what happens and yep. see, hey, okay, because it does feel like at times, Lenty, and I don't know if you feel this way, but when he's dribbling, he doesn't look confident dribbling the basketball. Like, it it looks like, and I know we can go back to last year and say he had turnovers in the postseason, and the first two games here he had four and then six turnovers. But I do wonder if that hand is really bothering him at this particular point because he does not look confident right now dribbling the ball. Yeah, I had this in my notes later on, but we can do this now if you want. You know, what's the concern level over Jalen Sand at this point? Because, again, you mentioned the, the shooting, and the shooting hasn't been great. Um, you know, again, we're in small sample size theater at this point. So, you know, only a couple of shots can, can skew the numbers uh, heavily in either direction, but was off of him three point range last night. Wasn't great from three point range in game one, was much better in game two, but 13 turnovers in three games. And actually last night was actually, I think it's cleanest night in terms of the turnovers. Um, but again, he doesn't, it's the confidence level. It's the, the ability to make plays like off the bounce, whether it's in transition or like just in their half court sets. I, I'm not quite sure where he's at. And if they had if they had gone up three nothing, you know, you could have rested him for game four because and like that, the reason why last night's game was super kind of critical for Boston because you I think a lot of people line on this. Boston last year 
played just two really tough series in a row before they got to the finals and it, and it killed them in terms of their energy. And you can, it, as much as people want to blame stuff like, yeah, playing the Milwaukee Bucks in seven games takes a toll on you and playing the Miami Heat in seven games takes a toll on you physically. And being able to wipe this team in four games or five games is really important. And if you, if you go to Atlanta last night, you know Atlanta's going to have their best shot and they're going to be the most motivated they can be. Well, when you're up three nothing, the next game is everybody's favorite one, two, three Cancun game. Everybody's getting ready to leave and you could arrest Jalen for that game and get him ready to go. I'm not super concerned about Jalen because I think the way Boston's going to be able to get some time off. Again, I think they're going to win going away here. I, I, I'm not really overly concerned about Atlanta really making this a really tough series, but getting Jalen a little more rest for that hand to heal a little bit, I think is going to be a big deal going forward. And the only thing I'll say in terms of if you were to have an injury somewhere, like I was going to sort of say this with Smart too, if you're going to have an injury somewhere, having it be some backcourt guys isn't the worst thing in the world because you have Brogdon and White, um, and like you could dust Pritchard off the bench if you wanted to to kind of make things work, patch it up for a game or two. Um, Jalen has slightly more responsibility than that and is much harder to replace than that. But you know, adding more Brogdon minutes to maybe to help with that, we'll see how it goes. Again, I think Jalen's going to play anyway because that's just. You know, this team seems to just want to play all the time. Um, Tatum obviously being the post child for that, but I am slightly concerned over Jalen Sand. I don't think it'll be a big deal going forward, but, you know, beating this team last night would have dispelled a lot of things and it would have let, you know, Joe rest Jalen if he needed to. Um, but they're going to need Jalen healthy, obviously, for later on here against Philly. Uh, coming up, and especially against Milwaukee, for sure. Well, Valenti, my whole thing is just I wasn't prepared for it, right? Like, we knew that he had stitches in his hand before the postseason. He couldn't play down the stretch. But I wasn't prepared for it to be, like, an actual thing. Like, when he came out to game one and he had that bandage on there, I'm like, whoa, this is not like a – this is like a big contraption, right? And then we saw, like, he was struggling at times dribbling the basketball in games one and game two. That's why I just felt like it would have made total sense. You're up to nothing. Basically, hey, if you go up – 3-0, 3-0, great without Jalen. If not, it's just 2-1. Then you bring him back for game four. So I just think that it would have behooved the Celtics to give him some rest because they have a history of sort of, and look, this is a totally different injury and it's not nearly as severe, but it, I, I was thinking about the Robert Williams thing. Like, remember when Robert Williams came back for games three and four against the Nets? And it's like, yeah. well, hold on. He's clearly not ready. Like he, he can't, he's not ready to go. And then in the Brooklyn series, he was basically a non-factor and he only played in three games because he had to keep sitting out because of the knee situation. And I'm not saying the hand is going to be the same thing. So um, the injuries are not even close to the same. I just feel like, okay, you kind of are in a situation where you can beat this Atlanta team without Jalen. Just give him game three off and then see what happens. And if you go up 3-0 without Jalen, then you don't even have to play him in game four and you go back to the garden for game five and you close it out there with Jalen. But I just felt like that was an opportunity considering that you were up to nothing to give him sort of some time off here. And unfortunately it just didn't work out that way for the Celtics. They end up playing Jalen and they end up losing the game as well. But I do think the point about ending this series quickly is important because you referenced the Milwaukee series and the Miami series. I gave you the bad loss against Milwaukee, but remember the Miami one game one, You had 14 points in the third quarter. Just a complete no-show. Tatum himself had six turnovers in the third quarter of that game. Game three against Miami. They turned the ball over 23 times. You had six for Tatum and seven for Jalen. Miami scored 33 points off your turnovers. So the reason I bring that up is it does feel like the Celtics, like this core group, 
they're incapable of just having a normal loss, right? Like, so with Miami, it was the turnovers. With Milwaukee, it was just like, you can't get a rebound at the end of the game. And this one, I felt like you couldn't just have a normal loss where it's, hey, the Hawks just played outstanding. No, you have to have, like, an unbelievably historically bad defensive performance. And so not only was your defense so bad, just like the first shot defense, but your defense in terms of the rebounding was so bad. So it just, it's a loss where... They didn't bring the necessary energy. And now, like, you're going to have an Atlanta team. I, I think they'll win game four on Sunday uh, Sunday, on uh, Sunday night. I get, I'm getting my games confused with the Bruins. But Sunday night, 7 o'clock, I believe they're going to win this game. But I do think they're going to have to expend a lot more energy in this game four because I do think that Atlanta is going to now be confident. The Sadiq Bays, who hit his threes, he's going to be confident. A guy that had zero points in the last game. Trey Young finally found himself. Murray's been confident throughout the series. Bogdanovich found it a little bit. So I do think it's going to be more difficult to end this Atlanta team. And this is happening because you just couldn't stop them at all from a defensive perspective. And it was all an effort thing. It's not like you're incapable. Look at the personnel you have. And the reason we know you're capable is because in the first two games, they had a 100.5 offensive rating, which would have been by far the worst in the NBA. So that's why it's just sort of frustrating that you're putting extra mileage on yourself, knowing what happened last year when you got to the NBA Finals. Look, fatigue is not an excuse because you created being that tired by these bad losses, but it is a reality. They were gassed. There's no way around it. Evan Valenti, Brian Barrett going over a lot of game four or game three stuff with the Atlanta Hawks, Boston Celtics, Celtics up to one of the series, previewing game four a little bit. Both of us feeling very confident about the way this series is going to go. Um, I think Boston has a response here as we head towards game four. Again, we've talked a little bit more about the adjustments, what Boston can do to make this easier for them as we head to game four. But I think just talent-wise, Barrett, C's are going to be just fine. Move on to the next round. Does it make you uncomfortable that we both feel kind of like easy about this? I, I, I'm already looking at Philly and just thinking, okay, you know, Embiid, is a little banged up. I, I haven't checked. Is he playing in the game against Brooklyn today? No, he's not playing. And Doc said before the game, the MRI was not good. Apparently he had swelling behind his knee. I don't know why Doc would just come out and say the MRI is not good if it was not great for Philly's perspective. I know Woj had reported that they were hoping that they could get him back at some point next week. But at the very least, Embiid's going to be banged up. And James Harden does not look like the same player. And look, it felt like he got it a little bit back this year in terms of his athleticism, but ever since he like missed time with that Achilles situation, he just doesn't look like the same player. Like he can't hit anything in the paint. Like all all the shots that he makes are from three point territory. He just doesn't have that same level of explosion that he had just maybe two years ago. Really, I mean, it's, he's been slowed down. Look, he's a great passer. He's probably going to have a big game in the series against the Celtics. But I just feel like sort of like we talk about with Trey. There's just so many guys the Celtics can throw at him, whether it be Smart whether it be Derek White, even Jalen Brown. You could throw Jason Tatum if you really want him. So in terms of the overconfidence thing, no. Oh, here's the reason I'm really confident. DeAndre Hunter, like, dude, this guy's supposed to be, like, an elite defender. Like, they were saying on the broadcast last night, I was watching the ESPN broadcast, and they were saying, like, oh, he's a great defensive player. He's been great. I'm like, how? Like, are you watching this? Tatum is just shredding. Tatum has no respect for him. He just goes right by him. Like, he's not even challenged by him whatsoever. So, and the other thing is, like, whenever you want to, if you get in a bind, you can bring up Trey, get him involved, and just go at Trey. So that's why I'm confident. It's just to something you mentioned earlier. They're just so bad defensively. I mean, they were horrible last night. They don't they don't have anything they can do to slow down the Celtics offensively. The only way the Celtics don't have a great offensive performance is if 
they do it to themselves. There's nothing Atlanta can do with them. Yeah, last night actually was the first time uh, Greeny had this. So that was a great stat. First time all season the Celtics had lost a game in which they shot 40% or better from three-point range. So Wow. Typically, again, it took Atlanta having a great offensive night for that to happen. I mean, it's really – I mean, Boston, again, just way more talented than them. And, again, you look towards Philly. I, I – I, I'm famous. I just keep, I don't sweat Philly at all. I really don't. I just don't. I really don't. I think Philly's, I mean, I think Embiid's incredible. I just don't think, again, they still don't have a guy that I think can really stop Jalen or Jason. I think Tyrese Maxey is tremendous. He had a great game in game three. He was awesome in game three. Um, and they, they definitely don't win it without him going bananas towards the end of the fourth quarter there. But, uh, again, again, we're, I know we're looking ahead and we probably shouldn't, should probably focus on, but I, I do think that, uh, Boston will handle Atlanta next couple of games. Move on to Philly, and we'll talk about that more when Kaufman gets back. But a couple of news things that have happened since we recorded, uh, mainly the one being Malcolm Brogdon winning sixth man of the year. Well done for Malcolm Brogdon. Shout out to the Celtics for using Celtics beat in their little video they put together of uh, of, of the Malcolm Brogdon like highlight package. Keith Smith, uh, we found out. Uh, Barrett, like, this is what ha- you know how this works in podcasts, and like stuff happens like in real time as you podcast. Well, the Malcolm Brogdon trade broke while Kaufman and Keith were doing a show, and they just reacted live. So they stole Keith's reaction during the pod, and then Kaufman being like, "He's not going to come off the bench, is he?" And then obviously he did the entire season in one year. It was what I thought extremely well deserved. I know Knicks fans are pissed about the Emmanuel Qu- quickly thing. Like, look, man, if Malcolm just played more minutes and started games, like, he would have the same numbers. It's not just – it is about, you know, bench production, and Malcolm Brogdon was a more efficient player. So, I mean, I, don't, I mean, I know Knicks fans are mad. I mean, quickly is a great player. He's going to be around for a while. But, like, Brogdon was the best reserve in the league this year, bar none, in my opinion. Yeah, it's been such a nice addition because he brought something that they didn't really have, which was a really aggressive driver outside of, like, Jalen Brown. Like, Jason Tatum can do it, but – the Celtics last year, I mean, I keep getting reminded of that Golden State series where when Tatum didn't have it going and when Jalen didn't have it going, like you needed somebody else that you could give the ball to and say, hey, just go create your own shot, right? Like, don't worry about everybody else because the Warriors are really good defensively. Go get your own shot, right? And Smart's not really that type of player. Derek White is not that type of player. It's not an indictment on those guys. But you mentioned earlier, like how good Brogdon is. Like you cannot deny him from getting downhill. He's just such a strong player. So I thought it was such a great move where – it gives you another, and there was going to be a Brogdon game like throughout this playoff run where Brogdon goes off in the fourth quarter and wins you a game because, and part of it is, well, now like Brogdon isn't getting the number one perimeter defender on the other team, right? Tatum and Jalen are getting the best wing defender. So when he comes into the game, he's not going to have the best defender on the floor in him. And in Indiana, he had that so often. His catch and shoot game has been incredible this season. I mean, the guy shot, what, north of 44% overall in three-point territory. He was over 40% as a pull-up three-point shooter. And I just go back to what Brad gave up. Aaron Neesmith, and I hope he has a good career, nothing against Aaron Neesmith. Malik Fitz, Daniel Tice, Nick Stauskas, Jawan Morgan, and a 2023 first-round pick. And this is where I think Brad is just so smart, where he says, okay, like, I really think that, like, in the market right now, we see, like, all these star players that are going for massive amounts of draft picks, right, and massive amount of players. Like, you think about the Rudy Gobert thing, which is one of the worst trades ever. Give Danny Ainge a lot of credit for that. But even Kevin Durant, how much he traded for him. And the thing that Brad had going for him, he didn't need to do any of those big moves because he already had the two stars. He had Tatum and he had Jalen Brown. So I do think, like, the league – 
has trouble evaluating those first-round picks. Like, a late first-round pick, that's basically what you gave up. And I guess Aaron Neesmith, if you really want to count him. But a late first-round pick on a team that is trying to win a championship over the next two to four years, right? I mean, hopefully longer than that with the contracts at Tatum and Brown. But at least for the next one to four years, you're trying to win a championship. So what's more valuable, picking 29th or having Malcolm Brogdon come off your bench? So I do feel like, now I understand where Indiana's coming from, right? They're, they're rebuilding. They want to get all the possible assets they can. But from my perspective, that's how you should be. If you're a contender like the Celtics, this is what you should be doing with your first round picks. Just like we saw last year at the trading deadline with Derek White. Same thing. Like what's more valuable, having Derek White on your team or what was the kid's name that they drafted? I actually have it in here somewhere. The kid that they drafted was Blake Wesley. Ever heard of Blake Wesley? No. I don't think Blake Wesley was helping this version of the Celtics. It's guaranteed. And again, Brogdon gives them exactly what they kind of need. Like I was really big on the point Tatum thing, and I still think that's going to be a thing as we get closer and closer to the finals. But like having Brogdon as a guy that can initiate offense, can get downhill, get to the free throw line, and just be an excellent three-point shooter. Like it's just exactly what the doctor ordered here. And you're absolutely right. Like the guys that they would have drafted or will draft potentially in the future, like none of that matters at all. Like you have this window where Jalen and Jason are competing for, you know, the conference finals, NBA finals, stuff like that. And you need to make sure that they can keep going back there. And Boston's done a nice job and Brad's done a great job just finding value. I mean, they didn't, I mean, the two trades, like, I mean, people freaked out about the, the pick swap for the, the, the Malcolm, the, 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 the Derek White thing. I mean, why are we complaining about a potential pick swap with the Spurs for a guy? And again, people at the time were like, oh, I don't get this Derek. I mean, if you watch Derek White play, he is legitimately perfect for this team. He's the connector piece that they were looking for. It was It was such a no-brainer. Yes, I'm aware he had a bad finals. It didn't mean it was a bad trade. And now all the people that, that killed this trade – if the NFL finals look like idiots because Derek White has been the best guard on either side in the playoffs this year, even with last night. He was been just ridiculous the first two games. But for me, Brogdon has just been been amazing in terms of what what he's provided and like the leadership, uh, the, a guy that's, again, involved in the players. So like it seems like the Celtics target guys like that. And Brogdon just brings I mean, I don't know if you saw him with the TNT crew, but like, yeah, he just. He he talks about how this isn't a, a me award; it's a team award. Like all, like he just he gets it. And the one thing I really appreciate about Brogdon is he's a guy who's been other places and knows like the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greenest on this team right here. This team is where I want to be. It's where most people want to be. Uh, he was to- he's totally fine with like, look, I'm not playing. I'm not the the number one or the number two, but I'm going to be a big part of a championship level team. And that's what we, I really want. And that's what I keep telling these guys. Yeah. And I think the other component is like when he first got traded here and he said, like, I'm not concerned about the playing time or anything along those lines. Like, I'm not concerned about being the guy anymore. Like that type of stuff that he was saying, it's like, okay, like, like, do we buy this? Yes, we do buy this. Right. Because we saw the results. And I think that, That takes a lot, right? Because whether or not, like, you look at Brogdon, he went to Indiana to be the guy, right? That's why he went to Indiana, because he felt like in Milwaukee, he was underutilized, right? Like, he was behind Giannis, and he was behind Chris Middleton on the pecking order. And obviously, those guys are both better players than Brogdon, but he wanted a bigger role. So he went to Indiana, he got that bigger role, he got to do his thing for a couple of years, and then he got to the point where 
He's entering his 30s, right? He's 29 years old right now. So he's almost 30. And he looks at it and he says, you know what? I think now it's more about winning a championship than it is about me being the guy. The one thing I'll say, though, just to wrap up on Brogdon here, Brian, is the fact that they like they went into the se- like the season with a plan to manage him. And I know it bothered a lot of people. Like I know that all this this rest stuff bothers so many people. And I get the like when you're resting Curry on the road in Cleveland. And you know, like I, I totally understand that side of it. But with Brogdon, it was all about trying to find a way to get him to the finish line healthy. And I know people that might not agree with, you know, doing this this way, but it worked. Brogdon made it through the entire season and he's healthy right now as the playoffs start. And again, things happen to playoffs. Guys can get hurt. That's the way it goes. I mean, you look at Jimmy Butler, you look at uh, Tyler Hero, Jan, like guys are going to get hurt. It's just the way it is. And I mentioned Jimmy Butler only because I always think he's playing with something. Like he's just an Iron Man, but like getting Brogdon to this point, that's what this whole management thing was about. And he looks just as healthy as he did day one. So, I mean, you can't really fault him there, right? Yeah, I'm I'm completely with you. And I do think that just looking forward with this thing is think about what you've gone through throughout this season with the injury to smart, right? Where it's like, okay, now you have depth at that position. Now give Pr- Peyton Pritchard credit. He came in and he played well when smart was injured as well, but just having that extra guard, right? Because if you look at it, smart is vulnerable to injuries. We've seen it throughout his career. So having Brogdon during the regular season to sort of pick up those minutes was huge. And then secondarily, he didn't have as hard of minutes as he had in the past, right? Where, like, we reference the fact he comes into the game and he's 100 miles an hour, he's driving, he's getting downhill. But he doesn't have to do that every play. Like, it's not like when he was in Indiana, he had to completely run everything. So I think that's also part of the fact that he's staying healthier, right? Because clearly he has health issues in the past with his feet and all that different type of stuff. But part of the reason he is healthier is because the usage rate isn't through the roof, right? It's more manageable for a guy of his skill set. Yeah, and and again, having him, again, if you put him on last year's finals team, totally different story, but having him I think is going to make big dividends. You know how uh, often I think about that, man? Like, I'm really? just like, what? Every time I watch him, like, when he starts going off, I'm thinking to myself, like, if they only had him against the Warriors, they would have won the championship. No, but you live and you learn. Like, they again, Stevens gave, gave him so much credit for identifying what they needed and, and going out and getting it and not waiting around. So, I mean, again, kudos to Brad. He's put together an incredible roster. We'll finish with this because uh, Ime Goka, former Celtics coach, is getting thrown around. I you know, I haven't seen – he hasn't been hired yet, right? I didn't miss anything today? No, he hasn't been hired yet, but Woj basically – initially when he reported Nick Nurse is out, like the next tweet is Ime Adoka is a leading candidate for the job. So it would yeah. appear that he's going to get that job because the other job he's up for is Houston, and it feels like Nick Nurse is going to get that gig. Yeah, so feel, but again, we all knew that Ime would be back soon. It's just a matter of time. I prefer if they're in the Western Conference – uh, just because I'd like to not face his defensive teams uh, from here on out. But, uh, you know, guy, look, the what happened with him, I'm, I'm not going to comment on because I don't know the whole story, so I'm just not going to do that. I will just say right. from a coaching standpoint, the guy got this team to the next level. And, and that's, you know, he is a guy that connects with players really well. Um, you know, his style might be a little different, but you know, he, he toughened this team up. I don't think, I don't think you can argue that. I think this team is tougher because of Ime, um, and the coaching job he did last year. But again, best of luck to him to where he goes. But it just seems like it, and we all knew this too, Barrett. It's not like we knew he was going to be sitting around long, but you know, now that we're getting towards the end of the season and, and jobs are opening up, Ime's name's going to pop up more and more and more and more. I just, again, Western Conference, please. Yeah. Well, and you know, the one thing that concerns me about this, is if Jalen doesn't get the Supermax, 
right? If he doesn't make all NBA and he doesn't get the super max, this would concern me because Jalen did make some comments earlier this year. I had the piece, of course, in the ringer with Logan Murdoch, had the piece in the Times. He talked about the trade rumors with the Kevin Durant stuff. He also talked about Ime in that piece where he said, I haven't talked to him, but I hope he gets another chance coaching again. He also went on to say, I wanted to see him back on his feet here, no matter what it was. I don't think that's the wrong thing to feel. So my point with all this is, okay, if Jalen isn't eligible for the Supermax, meaning he doesn't make an All-NBA team, and to be perfectly clear, I think he's going to make third-team All-NBA forward. So I don't think this is actually going to be a thing. I think Jalen's going to get All-NBA, and they're going to put the Supermax in front of him. But what if he doesn't? Does he start to think about the trade rumors again? Does he start to get... Who leaked the trade rumors? That's the real question. Was E-May the guy trying to trade Jalen Brown for Kevin Durant? <laughs> wow. That's a deep cut. That's it, de- what's the connection to Durant? E-May. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's a deep cut. Okay. All right. I see where you're going there. But I'm not as terrified of that particular uh, scenario, but I, it's a valid point. But what if Jalen – what if uh, E-May is like, hey, Jalen, I think you can be the guy here. I think you can be the star of Toronto. More marketing – there for him right like he's in he's here in Boston with being the number two to Tatum he goes to Toronto he can sort of be a star there and I think that the connection with Ime is just a scary one now like I said I I don't think this is going to happen Valenti I think that Jalen's and well deserving to make an all NBA team like game played games played has to matter like you can't be making all NBA teams when you're the Kawhi Leonard's of the world you have to play more games like it's it and that's why I do think that it was a smart thing that the NBA did with the CBA in terms of going forward you got to play what 65 games yeah. all for that but I think Jalen he's on the second best team in the Eastern Conference he was the second best player he put up really good numbers he deserves to make it so I don't think it's going to be a problem but I just I never thought about this before Friday when I saw Ime is like the leading candidate to get the Raptors job I'm like Oh boy. Is he like, obviously he probably feels wronged by what happened with the Celtics. And like you said, we don't know exactly what happened, but I'm sure Ime feels that way. No question. You don't think that he'd want to try to pry Jalen away? Try to pry somebody. But again, that's super max. Again, I'm with you. I think he'll, he'll make an all NBA team, but I, I, I won't celebrate until it's, it, it's, it comes out. But, uh, uh, hey, tell Jalen, we got a plant guy for you. You're never going to have to deal with plants again. We'll take care of those for you. Yeah, right. I don't know. Well, I, again, we'll see how it goes and we'll see where Udoka ends up. But it's like, for me, the, the Jalen to, to, to Toronto situation, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not scared of that. I'm scared of him going somewhere else, but we'll see how that goes. You know, I, I'm not going to get crazier until the, uh, the all NBA teams come out, but I, that's why I wanted to make an all NBA. I don't want to deal with any of this crap anymore. That's Brian Barrett. Barrett, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, talk, say hi to JJ for me. Uh, I, I got to be honest with you, I'm thrilled that Adrian Autry is already doing work as the new Syracuse basketball coach. This is great. This is good for everybody. Love Jim Beheim, but he needed to go years ago. Um, can't wait to get you guys. You guys got to do more, you know, together pods here if we can get you guys doing, uh, you know, little Sox Yankees or something like that, just for just for all us Cuse guys. Yeah, we definitely will. And maybe if the Knicks make it all the way to the conference finals somehow and the Celtics do, we'll definitely do a crossover for that. But yeah, we definitely do some crossover Red Sox Yankees ones. We did some Jets Patriots ones too and some Dolphins because he's randomly a Dolphins fan. So, yeah, it's a New York thing. Well, remember in Syrac- at Syracuse, we couldn't do any shows together because they thought the accents were too strong. Yeah, it was hilarious. I mean, to be fair, they are, they are quite strong, but uh, <laughs> JJ's is stronger than yours though. It's oh, for sure. For sure. He's he's Staten Island born and bred. He can't take it out of him for sure. But that's that's part of the shtick. That's part of this the appeal. 
But that's the Ringers, Brian Barrett. I'm Evan Valenti. Thanks to FanDuel. Thanks to BetterHelp. FanDuel.com backslash Boston. FanDuel.com backslash Boston. Gets you 200 bucks in free bets. Uh, BetterHelp.com backslash Beat. Gets you 10% off your first month. I'm Evan Valenti. Adam Kopp will be back next week. We have some news coming out next week, so stay tuned for that. But thank you guys so much. Enjoy game four. See you next week. Ciao.